Open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. John, chapter 8. We've been looking at the question, why is it so hard to believe in today's world? And in continuing our study, I would like us to consider a familiar verse found in our text. Our text will actually begin in verse 31 and go to verse number 42. We'll come to it later. It's one that is often quoted, or at least a part of it, and sometimes by unbelievers who use it to refer to something else entirely. Again, I were watching TV the other night and we were on the police show and one of the characters, I said, that's our text. Um, it's found in verse number 32. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I think this, the reason this verse or this phrase, the truth will set you free, is so familiar, so popular, so often used, is in part in the modern age to be modern is to be free. Freedom is seen as the mark of modernity. And not only freedom from things, but freedom to do as one chooses. And there is a sense or belief, cut off from its Christian roots, that freedom comes from knowing the truth. For many who read this verse, Truth is the key concept. And certainly truth is the focus of what Jesus is talking about. We'll come to that later. For others, particularly in the modern age, being free is the key idea. I would suggest to you that you consider the verb know. To know. I am convinced that in the modern age there is a significant problem with understanding this statement in that most people assume that they know what knowing means. And while Christians may focus on truth, though we believe in being set free, and unbelievers on being set free, though they may speak of truth, both, in fact, Christians and non-Christians may share a mistaken view of what it means to know because they are people of the modern age. And by mistaken, I mean to have a view that is contrary to what Jesus intended and what knowing means in Scripture. See, in the modern age, we tend to think that knowledge is information, facts, bits of data, content, true statements justified by other true statements. And while this is not exactly false, we tend to have a vision of this as being knowledge being this only, such a narrow view of what it means to know something. We conclude that gaining knowledge is, in fact, a matter of collecting information. And as a result of collecting this information, we are trained, we are expert, we are certain. And perhaps in light of our passage, we are believers, we are free. We do distinguish in the modern age certain things. Knowledge from belief, facts from values, reason from faith, theory from application, thought from emotion, mind from body, objective from subjective, science from art. And so, in the one category, we see certain things connected, knowledge, facts, reason, theory, objectivity, science. And we see them, or we want to set them aside, as being kept pure from this other category of things that are less certain. These uncertain things, like emotions and thoughts. We want to keep them pure because we think if we can keep passion out of knowledge, then we can, in fact, have objective knowledge. And so we cut knowledge off from ourselves, we who are the knowers, and we come to see knowledge or knowing as something almost indifferent 
something about which we may be, in fact, completely bored because we are the ones who know and these are the bits of information that we know. They're over here by themselves. And so knowledge comes to simply be a convenient summary of data. In the modern age, that's what it means to know. Esther Lightcap Meek has written a number of books on knowing. Her last one, uh, the, third is, uh, the third book, is the shortest, A Little Manual for Knowing. And she suggests the following, that knowing is a pilgrimage, knowing is a pilgrimage together, and that know, knowing is a gift. But you might ask yourself, and I certainly did, how did she get to this point and how are we to understand what she's saying? Well, it begins by recognizing the nature of reality. And this is something we've looked at in this series we see the world in a very different way than pre-modern people did. If we think of reality, if we think of creation as a gift, then I think this begins to help us realign what it means to know creation. If creation is a gift, then certainly knowing creation should be seen that way as well. How you respond to a gift is usually highly personal, or it should be, so how we think about knowing really shapes the way we look at reality. How we think of creation and what God has done. We've seen in this series that in the modern world, the world has become disenchanted. It has become impersonal, something to be dissected and studied and analyzed. To put it simply, the world has become flattened. It's, it's almost ironic that People, it is said, used to believe that the world was flat, and now they see that it is, in fact, round, it is a sphere. Uh, but in fact, in coming to that knowledge, their view of knowledge has in itself become flattened, two-dimensional, binary, ones and zeros, impersonal bits, so much data to be collected. And the goal of getting all of this information, or of knowing, is to eliminate any mystery at all from an indifferent universe. It's to accumulate all these bits of information so that we might have full and complete and comprehensive knowledge. But if creation is a gift from God, the creator, then I would suggest to you that love is to be at the core of all things. It is not impersonal. It is not passive or inert. It is deeply dynamic. Knowledge is, in fact, has its roots in love. Such knowledge is not only dynamic, but it is ever new and ever surprising. And there is always an aspect of mystery. And so instead of being indifferent and having a distance, I am the knower, these are the things that I know, there comes to be, in fact, an intimate relationship. If love is at the core of all things, and if reality at its core is, in fact, a personal gift, then it, it makes sense that knowing is, in fact, a responding gesture of love. This is God's creation. And as I seek to know it, then, in fact, love is to be somewhere in that equation. We love in order to know. And love is not the amassing of information. Knowing is not the amassing of information. But it should, in fact, love should characterize the way that we relate to the gift of God's world. But you might say, wait a minute, Damon. How can we count on love being at the core of all things? Life seems to contain as much curse, if not more, than it does love. And, and certainly, curse seems normal or normative in our world. It's brokenness, it's hurt, it's pain. 
is in fact connected to broken promises and betrayal. But if you have broken promises, that means you have promises. And if there's betrayal, that means that there is something there, I would say something of great value, that in fact has been betrayed. And so, there is something larger than curse. If curse is broken promises, there's something larger than that, and that is promises. It implies a larger context of blessing and pledge. Just a side note, because Meek talks about this, and she deals with the issue of obsession. Can you love something too much? Obsession is an unhealthy form of relating to something. It is selfish and possessive, driven by power. We should not call it love. Love accords space and true otherness to the other, rather than seeking to absorb it. It involves a pledge to accord space and dignity to the other. I find that intriguing. But let's stop a minute. Let's ask ourselves whether we love in order to know. Do we bring to our knowing, our knowing adventure, if you wish, our pilgrimage, the love that will invite knowing? And what does it mean to love in order to know? I think part of the problem is, in fact, we are modern people. And so we have absorbed uncritically the knowledge as information approach. And such an approach does not allow us, cannot tap into things like desire or wonder or notice or self-giving. And in this respect, our children, I think, are far advanced to us and somehow we regress because we lose that sense of wonder. We lose that sense even of notice that we just go through the world and fail to recognize the beauty of God's creation. I would suggest to you that in Scripture, knowing adventures begin out of desire or love. And that is the big difference between biblical knowing and modern knowing. The dynamic of loving and caring in order to know blends together two things. One is being active and one is being receptive. It's not active-passive, but it's active and being receptive. Meek argues that it is impossible to know which comes first. And I think sometimes the active part, our part, comes first. and other parts, it is the receiving that comes first. But they, in fact, must come together. It all begins with wonder, though. It all begins with a sense of noticing something about what God has done or is doing. Something about God's creation catches our attention. And to start to know is actually a first response to a dimly heard beckoning of the real that is full of wonder. It's a quote from me. Once we are wondering and noticing, we may responsibly choose to give ourselves to a pilgrimage. I want to know that thing. I want to know more about that. And so our adventure of knowing unfolds. There's a dance of mutuality. There isn't this division between I'm the person who knows, I'm the student, and this is the thing being studied, but there in fact becomes, or there should be, a relationship. And that's why Meek refers to this as being a pilgrimage. But there is more. Knowing is a pilgrimage together. Caring in order to know is often best done with other people. Somehow we imagine that the great thinkers, the great knowers, are these solitary figures. Um, 
reading a book recently, and something I did not know, that Rodin's famous statue, The Thinker, is actually one of the characters from the Divine Comedy. Uh, that, that, he, that is actually his hell. And somehow we have, we've, we've somehow elevated to, this is what a really smart person is. This person is alone, and they think, and they know. That's not biblical, I would suggest to you. Because even the solitary knower, if you wish, who imagines that he or she is knowing alone, has already appropriated a language that was there before he or she was. A culture, a tradition. They aren't really alone, though they might imagine that they are. We all have a unique way of looking at God's creation because we are all utterly distinct and different. And out of our distinct care and love, we notice different things. There are certain things that pop out to us that may not to other people. And when we know together, we can share these things. Because the things that interest me may not interest you and vice versa. But together as God's people, we can share, and I want to be careful, share that knowledge not as information, but as a great love and affection for God's creation. What is the goal of knowing? Why do we want to know what we know? In the modern world, you might think um, it's, it's about being comprehensive, eliminating mystery, stripping reality of any enchantment it might have. Um, we'll see this, the Lord willing, next week. Part of the goal of the modern world is certainty. And that is actually sort of duplicitous because people will say, if I'm not certain, then I cannot commit myself. I must be certain of what I know in order to do something. Well, how many things are you truly certain of and yet you still, you still act? But the Lord willing, we'll come to that next week. In Scripture, in which love is the beginning of knowing, the goal is communion. It is communion. The communion of knower and known. And communion is the fulfillment of love. And this directs us toward what God intends, and that is rest and peace. We may be at peace with our efforts to know the long journey it may entail, the incompleteness that may be involved, our dependence on others, and with creation itself. We may be confident in our contribution and confident even in the face of risk. I think one, this is an aside, one way in which the church has, in a sense, followed the world in the modern world is the church seems unwilling to take risks. Because what if, what if we lose? Let's say, what if we lost this property because of a stand that we took? There seems to be an unwillingness to take risk. And for the most part in the modern world, people are averse to risk. Uh, if you doubt, I'm convinced that if somehow, you, I don't know how you could do this, but if, if you could ship this generation back to the middle of the, eight, uh, to the 19th century, the middle of the 1800s, uh, California would still be desert. There wouldn't be any people out here. Because this generation, this culture where we are right now, seems unwilling to take the risk to go out and explore. I mean, the people in the 19th century were incredibly brave in ways that it's really hard for us to comprehend. 
as Christians, we should not be afraid uh, to take risk. Is in the book of Psalms, we will come to it in some time, that a wise man falls down seven times, gets up, the fool falls once and is destroyed. Uh, a wise person is not afraid of falling down. We may delight in the adventure of knowing. We may hope for joy. We may hope for and joy in the deepening communion with reality. Okay, I'm saying these words and yet even to me it sounds a bit strange. After all, we are modern people. But stop and think a minute. Stop and think. Have you ever embarked on a particular adventure? And I I use the word adventure in a very broad sense. Um, Where you wanted to learn something or to know something. And you notice that the reason you did it is because you really wanted to know. There was a love, if you wish. There was wonder. That's why you did it. That's why you picked up a book and you read it. That's why you studied something. That's why you planted something. That there is a desire within you. It isn't simply, this is information. But there was, in fact, something driving you that I would argue is love. In that pursuit, did you not notice something remarkable about the world Something that suggested future, future aspects, future events that could be quite exciting. Now we might say, yeah, that's what artists do. That's sort of what, you know, they, they, they think ahead. They are designers. They're innovators. But could we not say the same for those who are caregivers or those who are service providers? Should we not say it for all of us? That as we begin things, part of the reason we begin is because there is something there that drives us. Think a moment. If you're about to start a new course of study, you may not find that you have it yet. You don't have that love yet. So you're not studying it because you love it, but you may do so because somebody else loves it. Or because in time you think you will come to love it. I think we all find ourselves in the situation at one time or other. For all of us, entering a knowing adventure requires at some point that we trust. We must trust others who have taken the adventure ahead of us, who know things that we do not yet know about reality and perhaps even about ourselves. We may need to trust somebody else's love and notice and wonder. And in the process, we may come to know in small in a small way as they have known. All knowing is coming to know. We don't, uh, it isn't as though we say, okay, this is it. I know everything that there is to know. We are always in the process of knowing. And if we love in order to know, then we pledge ourselves to that project of coming to know. But let's face it, this just sounds so strange. And this is not how most people today think of knowing. As a teacher, with university students, I find that most of them, when they come into the classroom, assume the knowledge as information approach, and they have come to my class to collect information. And the one issue for them, the one question I dread hearing every quarter is, is this going to be on the test? In other words, I don't, they don't necessarily want to know this because they have an interest 
a passion, a love for it, they simply are collecting the information and they want to know what bits of information do they have to regurgitate on the exam. I would argue that in a process like this, there is no commitment, there is no pledge, and there is no love or affection. They pledge, and you find this in university students, but not just in our age, I think it's always been true, since they do not pledge themselves to the subject matter that I'm trying to present to them, they pledge themselves to something else, usually outside the classroom, usually on the weekends, and that's where their love and their affections and their energies go. Because knowing for them, after all, is simply collecting information. It doesn't involve how they feel, what they think. It's simply information. Many, if not most, do not embrace the commitment that is required to learn more than what the professor is telling them. And as a result, I would argue they fail to be educated and they do not learn how to know. So there is no commitment, which involves choice. There is no pledge, which involves risk. And there is no trust, which is the other side of pledge. By the way, they don't want any risk, and that's why they want to know what's going to be on the test. Because they want to make sure they get a good grade on the test. It's not a question of learning them the material. They, in fact, want to get a good grade. What is it that we pledge? We've been talking about pledge. We pledge to take the risk to follow something that in the end may not be there. If you are doing research on a particular project, you said, this really sounds fascinating. I'm going to pursue this. And after days, maybe weeks, maybe months or years, you find out it's not there. On the other hand, we may take the risk to find something that is quite different than what we imagine. Many people have started out on their dissertations or on books saying, this is what I'm going to study. And the end result is quite different than what they thought it would be. But they have pledged themselves, they have committed themselves, they have decided to take the risk, and in the process, they have come to know. We have pledged to do what it takes, and we live our lives in terms of what we do not yet know. We pledge ourselves to do the work it takes. We must count the cost, which means perhaps changing our behavior, stopping other activities, beginning others, Acquiring additional skills, an investment of time, perhaps money, and just sheer determination. When we take pledge and trust together, we see the relational dimensions of knowing. That if, in fact, I must pledge and I must trust, then knowing isn't simply collecting information. In a traditional wedding vow, there are the words, the old English words, I plight thee my troth. That is to pledge one's loyal or pledged faithfulness. There's a certain redundancy built into that. The word English, the English word for truth actually comes from troth, which means a pledge of faithfulness and relationship and underscores that pledge and truth are central to what it means to learn and to know. With this in mind, we will consider this further, the Lord willing, next Sunday. Listen to our text here in John chapter 8, beginning in verse number 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? 
Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son, a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in my father's presence, and you do, and you do what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and now I'm here. I have not come on my own. But he sent me. I just point out certain things in this text in light of what we've seen. But the text. First of all, notice in verse number 31, and I remember when we went through the Gospel of John being really startled by this. Jesus is not speaking to his opponents here. You see in verse number 31, he's speaking to people who believed in him. Okay? These are the believers, not the unbelievers. Quite startling. Secondly, I find it almost humorous that they seem to have forgotten their history. In verse 33, we are Abraham's descendants and never have been slaves of anyone. I feel like, really? Do you guys not know Jewish history at all? The freedom that Jesus speaks of is a freedom from sin. I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Verse 34 and then verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Then lastly, see the connection between knowing, truth, freedom, the Son setting one free, and love. And in this passage, our modern view of knowledge, I think, is profoundly challenged. Later, in John chapter 14, the night of his betrayal, the night before his passion, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He was answering a question from uh, from Thomas. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus' answer is to point to himself. We're like, well, that's not, that's not information. That's not knowledge as information. By the way, one way that people sort of cop out, if you wish, or opt out of that is say, well, truth and knowledge are, in fact, you know, separate realities. And I, I, would, I would beg to differ. The knowledge that Jesus speaks of is rooted in love, in trust, and in pledge. But we would prefer knowledge, facts, reason, theory, objectivity, and perhaps even science. In a word, we prefer information. For us, that is knowledge and that is truth. And if we are not careful, then we are just like the people in verse number 31. The people who believed in Jesus. And yet, somehow, our thinking has been so corrupted by the surrounding culture. And our thinking... Well, the Bible becomes a source of information. Knowledge is information. You want to know it's in the Bible. It's all there. And even apologetics now, oftentimes, is simply a game of reason. Here, let me counter your argument with my argument. There is no love. There is no desire. There's nothing personal, and we have really messed up. I said earlier in the series 
that what I don't want to happen as a result of these sermons is what I call the second year syndrome. Years ago, when I was in Bible college, there seemed to be this recurring thing that would happen every year in which, for some reason, at a certain point, a number of second year Bible school students would go forward during the altar call to be saved. And in my opinion, these are people who were, in fact, generally Christian, but they had reached a point where they they had come to the conclusion that they were not Christians. Why second year? Well, in second year, we studied the doctrine of salvation, soteriology. And there they learned things that they had not known when they became Christians. And so I think this doubt crept in. Maybe I wasn't a Christian because I didn't know these things. You know, when I came to Christ, I was aware of my sin. I gave my life to Christ. And that's all I know. I didn't know all this other stuff, substitutionary atonement and all those. I didn't know about those things. So maybe I really didn't become a Christian. And I would say, no, we are saved not because of our knowledge, because of, but because of God's grace. Our salvation is based on God's grace, not our knowing or our knowledge. As I said back when I first mentioned this, the comparison I would make is the love a couple have for one another in the present. And perhaps when they look back to when they got married, they're like, you know, I thought I loved my spouse when we got married. But it's nothing compared to now. So so maybe I didn't really love my spouse back then. Um, The growth of love does not call into question earlier love. In the same way, we may have a a defective understanding of knowledge being the modern people that we are. But God is gracious. We are saved by God's grace. And in His grace, may we come to see the truth and think biblically rather than the way that the modern culture, the surrounding culture does. Let us look to God and his word as we seek to grow. How does Paul put it? Let me read to you from Colossians 1. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray that in order... We pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. If we come closer to a biblical understanding of knowing and truth, not seeing it merely as bits of information that we are to collect, I do believe that certain passages of Scripture that are difficult, I'm not saying all of a sudden we'll understand them fully, suddenly they'll become, they will begin to resonate with us to a certain degree. One is found in Hebrews 10. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. If you think of knowledge as information, then you think, well, listen, if a person has a certain amount of information and then they turn away, then, then God, you know, that's it. That's why these harsh words about uh, consuming fire, a raging fire. But no, knowledge is not simply information. It is, in fact, commitment. It is a pledge. It is trust. And if someone has done that and then they willfully turn away, 
than what the writer to the Hebrews tells us, in fact, is true. Second Peter, and Peter writes about the false teachers. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Again, if we think of knowledge as information, we'll think, well, you know, they learned these things, they went to Sunday school, they went to church for a while, they have this information, and it's, it's better that they didn't have this information. That's not what Peter is saying. That is not what Peter is saying. He is saying that if in their lives there was commitment, there was pledge, there was trust, there was love, and then they choose to walk away, boy, it would have been a lot better for them that they had never known these things. By the way, these are, I hope that you will pursue this in your thinking, but there are so many things to think about and with regard to this. What happens if in our old age we develop dementia or Alzheimer's and we no longer know information? Are we not the people of God anymore because we don't know information? We are far too modern. In closing, hear the words that John wrote in his second epistle. The elder, to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, how gracious you are to us. You have saved us by the work of your Son, the continuing work of your Spirit. But living when and where we do, we have been infected, we have been corrupted by the thinking of the surrounding culture. And somehow we've managed to blend it in with your Word. And now we understand it in a way that is not correct. The truth that we are to know is not simply information. It involves commitment, pledge, and trust. It is personal. It begins with love. And we love you because you first loved us. By your Spirit, may we think these things through. May we do so together and not simply as individuals. May your spirit guide our thoughts. I thank you that we could come together today, that you've brought us together to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we have a sense of your presence as we walk through the world in the coming week. We do pray in a special way for the McCurleys as they travel, for Stacy and her baby as the time of her delivery draws near. Watch over them, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.